A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down in the office with Rebecca Hofberger, the CEO, visionary, and founder behind the American Visionary Arts Museum. It was one of our first true live recordings off-site at a historic building. Located in Baltimore, Maryland, the museum is housed in several historic structures. Our wide-ranging interview with Rebecca explored the background of the creation of this facility and why she chose a historic campus of buildings on Baltimore's waterfront to tell this dramatic and important artistic story. Sit back as the arts and preservation combine for one fantastic tale told by Rebecca Hofberger. This is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Hi, this is Nick Redding, and before we get to this week's episode of PreserveCast, I wanted to ask you for your help. You see, PreserveCast costs money to produce, money that Preservation Maryland has put forward to try and get this program and this project off the ground. So far, we've had a lot of success with that, thanks to the listeners and to the support of people just like you. And we're hoping that as the year-end approaches, some of you will consider making another gift, or perhaps your first gift, to help support this project. Since the beginning of 2017, we've produced a weekly podcast, which is no small feat, I can assure you of that. And uh, Stephen, who sits behind the desk here producing that, and myself have put a lot of work and a lot of effort into this to try and reach a broad cross-section, a very diverse collection of voices from all across the preservation spectrum to bring them all here and to put that information and that story forward. Of course, all of this content is produced for free. And so like many other podcasts, we're here at the end of the year to ask you and make you think about what would you be willing to pay for this kind of content? Were it on a Netflix or Amazon or Hulu? So whatever it might be, we greatly appreciate your support. Uh, and we are so excited. We have a lot of really fun plans for 2018 to try and take this to the next step. In fact, just in the next few weeks, we're going to be rolling out a standalone PreserveCast website along with its own social media presence to try and take this to the next level. This may be a project or a program empowered by Preservation Maryland, but this is a conversation that deserves its own platform and deserves to be at a national level, and that's where we hope to take it in the year ahead. Any little bit that you can do to help would be fantastically appreciated. You can go to our website, at preservationmaryland.org. From there, you can click to donate. We greatly appreciate your support. And even if you can't give today, share PreserveCast with a friend. Let them know about what you've been listening to. We greatly appreciate your support and hope to hear from you in 2018. So this is Nick Redding, and we're doing one of our first live on-site versions of PreserveCast. Woohoo! Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we're sitting in the office of Rebecca Hofberger, visionary and founder of the American Visionary Art Museum. And we're going to talk with her about the founding of this place and why she decided to take on 
this project in this historic campus of buildings. Mm -hmm. So, Rebecca, what brought you to the decision that you were going to found this place? What brings you to that place in your life to make that decision Mm -hmm. that you're going to take on something that challenging? Because that's not a simple thing to do. Well, I had always, uh, you know, already at that point had been a development director for meritorious causes. But I was also a great believer in intuition and its role in creative invention of all sorts, not just the arts, so to speak, but particularly in in the world of science and, and invention in general. I really wanted a place that would be a temple to intuitive learning and inspiration versus learned learning, you know, at the feet of somebody else's right. ideas. And really, I don't get my ideas a little bit at a time. I get them wholly born, you know. And um, I had the idea when I was working for the Department of Psychiatry at Sinai Hospital. But uh, early on when I articulated it, someone said, oh, that sounds like Jean de Buffet, the famous contemporary artist, modern artist, collection in Lausanne, Switzerland. When he got fed up with the whole BS of the art world, he went back to his parents' business of wine and champagne, import-export. And the only art that didn't seem self-conscious and commercialized was the work he collected from street people, mental patients, uh, factory workers, deep trans mediums. And he was so, he fell in love again with what it was to create when you're not trying to impress someone else. Right. That's interesting. And uh, if you've heard of Champagne Brut, B-R-U-T, mm-hmm. it means like raw champagne. So he didn't want to uh, use museum industry words. So he called it his Collection de la Brut. But Brut in English has a, a bad connotation. Right. That, that doesn't mean raw. You yeah. Know? We actually just did an episode on brutalism. Oh, you did? And the architecture of raw concrete. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> so did you know what? Did you know that a concrete uh, goes back kind of the Rockefellers of Switzerland or because a man named Schmidt Heine got the patent on how to make concrete, like for making garages really quickly. Yeah. And his daughter is one of the most brilliant women in Baltimore. She was the first campaign manager to Senator Barbara Mikulski. Just like you said, there's sort of this connotation with brute in, in the mm-hmm. English language. It's a you know a false consonant. It's a people come to brutalism and they think it's this terrible type of architecture. In reality, it was not meant... It's, it's not brutal, it's raw concrete. So you're creating this, the Visionary Art Museum in a similar respect to this museum that was then created, the one that you're talking about in Europe? Yeah, but where we differ from all the other maybe, I don't know, almost 30 different kinds of collections, besides being the biggest of outsider or visionary, we prefer the name, uh, or art brute, um, is that we organize our exhibitions not around just individual artists, with a few exceptions, but every year with those themes that are repeated in the visionary mentality uh, so that every year, before I opened the door in 1995, I knew the first 11 exhibitions thematically. And we've just been unfolding, you know, the whole time, these large, large themes. I used the museum as a scam to get on the phone with anybody I've ever really admired. And, and you know, we've worked with Nobels, and Archbishop Tutu was a partner and wept, you know, when he saw what we did with his words and... 
uh, loved it, loved it. You know? And are you the biggest of your kind in the United yes. States? No, not in the, everywhere. In Even, the world? Yeah, there's the Museum of the Unconscious in Brazil that was uh, begun uh, as a psychiatric collection, which we're not. But back um, in 1952, the year I was born, really um, their collections, uh, you know, all over Europe, uh, several in Brazil, uh, in Moscow, etc. And we are the biggest. When I lectured at Tate Modern, you know, it, it it was we were the biggest. And so let me ask you this: Why Baltimore and why a historic building? Well, I'm originally from here. Okay. And I had wonderful parents to take care of, but you know, uh, Baltimore is has always been a cauldron of opposing um, ideas and energies. You know, it's on the first. You know, I always love to say that. On one hand, the first American Catholic saint was from here. But when Madeline Murray O'Hare took prayer out of school, she was in Parksville. <laughs> and then when the Ouija board was patented, it was from here. Right. You know, there's this, you know, so if you look at the there's role... There's a strange duality to everything in Baltimore. Y- yes, they, uh, you know, neither north or south. The first, you know, right. shots of the Civil War were right here. You know, right. there's always this... Uh, and sadly, today, we have sort of a well-to-do, expanding, exciting Baltimore, and then we seem to have a Baltimore that's left behind. You know, there's some, you know, yeah. there's some dualities that we still suffer with to this day. Well, but you know what? Um, if if it would be really a shame, in a way of of unfairness, if wealthy people really were infinitely happier uh, than <laughs> than poor people. But I look at a lot of unhappy, yeah, wealthy people. You know, yeah. there, we did an exhibition. That was actually called "Who Is Rich?" Treasures of the Soul. Who is rich? And that goes back to a spiritual rabbinic question, where the answer was the wise answer was the few who are content with their portion. And I, I actually I don't know if you ever saw our exhibition on character that I worked with Archbishop Tutu and Rosie O'Donnell were involved and. The exhibition, I wanted people to focus on character. What are those attributes we admire most in ourselves and in others? And it was called race, class, and gender. Three things that contribute zero to character because being a schmuck is an equal opportunity for everybody. <laughs> and that's the point is like, you know, you can be this magnificent human being, content, giving, loving, and have very little. You can be one SOB with great talent, great wealth, and you, you know, you're Scrooge, you know? Well, let me ask you this. So let me fra- rephrase it a different way. A lot of museums, particularly art museums, seem to sort of pride themselves on the building that they can create to house their collections. And mm-hmm. it doesn't always often end up in a historic building. Sometimes it's, mm-hmm. it's new build, new construction. What led you to the decision? Is it just because Baltimore is a place filled with wonderful historic buildings, or, or was that a part of the decision process to locate in a historic no, place? Um, I, tr- I had the idea first, and I went after the old... There's a road up on Federal Hill which had an, a historic old prison, and they had this Italianate beautiful brick uh, faces of gargoyles on it. Austin Street, O-S-T-E-N-D. Austin, yep. Austin Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was let out to bid, competitive bid, and I was friends with Ben Cohen of Ben & Jerry's and Jerry Greenfeld at the time, and there was no franchise here yet in Baltimore. And I thought, great, they were like these five jail cells with the the toilet drain right in the middle. And I said, well, we're going to, with picnic tables, we'll make a restaurant 
uh, cafe con artistes, and I joke you wouldn't have to even get up <laughs> if you had beer and have to go to the bathroom because everything was right there, you know, that we would do that. And, um, you know, we got pretty far and we, we submitted. And uh, by then, the London Sunday Times already picked up what a great idea it was. It was just an idea, right? But I, I knew how to sell it. And it went instead to like this other group doing like social work stuff. And I was very crestfallen. But they said, well, how about this building, which was then known as the Trolley Works, the office for the Trolley Works, which was kind of a revival trolley, you know, not really hooked anything, touristy thing. Uh, why don't you go after this building? Well, nobody was going after this building because uh, they knew that um, the city had backhoed a 3,000-gallon tank of Varsol and that they had cracked it and that all these chemicals were in the soil. Yeah, I don't know what Varsol is, but it doesn't sound good. It's a petroleum-light product. <laughs> well, that, was, that turned out to be for our advantage in the long run. So developers were very frightened because the EPA was going after everybody in the chain of ownership, and they, you know, no, nobody wanted to get jump into the chain, right? So this was kind of protected because this was kind of no man's land over here when, when we uh, jumped in and decided to build. And um, let me tell you the funniest thing. Okay, so our store is in this curved part. This, the original 1913 building, which is one half of our main building, before it was the Trolley Works, it was the offices for the Baltimore Copper Paint Company. And one of the owners of that company was still alive. His name was Oliver Reeder, a very dapper, lovely man who had lots of history. So um, I got to meet Oliver Reeder. Now, why was the Baltimore Copper Paint Company such an important thing? It's because they got the patent. Somebody found that if you put copper into maritime paint, no barnacles will ever grow. And so... You know, they had the the mm. corner on that. And so, you know, barnacle scrape, scrape, scrape was right. a, a big pain in the Patusi. And so here's this this wonder paint that could keep it from growing. So that was their their fortune. That was later bought out by the Jotun Paint Factory. But what I wanted to tell you is, is in 1913, a new graduate from the Maryland Institute designed this, this curved building, which hugged the curve of Key Highway which was there at that time, too, okay, at the north um, northeast corner of Federal Hill. And um, by 1914, there was more of a building here, because you see it's, like, abruptly right. cut, right? It was struck by lightning, and half of the building burned down immediately. Hmm. So what did we do? We put a three-ton whirly gig, like, kick me lightning, right out there, right? <laughs> We've had very good luck. And it goes 13 feet into the ground. So I think it's like the best, you know, lightning rod ever. So you know that the Academy Award in building is actually um, the National Award for Excellence from the Urban Land Institute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Did you know we were the first museum to ever win? I didn't know you were the first, but that's pretty exciting. It was really. I felt like Sally Fields. They liked me. They really liked me. <laughs> we went, I went to Texas to get the award. Right. And um, So and for people listening, what you're describing is that you've blended both a, a historic building with a new structure. Correct. Connecting the whole and, campus. And uh, the two architects, one was in my, I had another company that I just didn't like their understanding of the project. So I had a woman in my office named Rebecca Swanston 
who lived up on Federal Hill, was trusted by the neighborhood, had, you know, was licensed, etc. But the first architect sent me Alex Castro, who had been the favorite student of Kahn, from Louis Kahn from mm -hmm. Penn, but he had never built a building and he wasn't licensed and he was 50 years old. And when he saw what I had in my office, a room smaller than this, he wept. And I said, look, I really love the feeling you have for this art. Can I uh, take you to lunch with Rebecca Swanston, who's in my carpool at Friends, you know, we were both moms at the time, and see if you could work together. And then they met, and they both agreed that they would go home that night and come up with a design. And he said that night it was like he was being hit by lightning. Uh, and he drew this Fibonacci from our entry that you came, did you come in the main door? Up it, the ramp, and then it swirls into our central stair. Um, and we were not offered this building yet. So the original idea was that we would come up and that we would have a sculpture garden on the roof looking out over the water. But it was a blessing when, when Federal Hill said nothing can be higher than Federal Hill which was the top of this flagpole. They said, nothing can ever be higher than that. And I said, well, then I can't do it because the best of visionary art is really big and I need, I need big space. And they said, no, we want you here. We will fight to get you this building, this building right here, this warehouse. This was a horrible 50s building, okay? So you know, we had to go through so many approval. We had to raise a certain amount of money every so often or we would have lost the negotiating priority and so in um, total how much did the project cost to get this in the ground uh, i mean i know there's a probably a big amount you have to raise every year but how much right. did it take no, no, just no. to get uh, it up to, and running to do the the land it was actually cheaper to do a bigger site because had i done a roof like our our, our circular um stairwell was supposed to come out to the roof but Believe it or not, anything that you put with plants and things on the roof is extremely heavy, much more than people realize. Any, you know, that's why even uh, sedum roofs or green roofs mm -hmm. are much. You have to get all sorts of engineering done to even support right. them. So it's not like you can just slap them up on your house <laughs> or something. Unfortunately, so I think it was uh, like a five point six equipped, and that was twenty seven thousand square feet under roof at the time. That's it's pretty good. Darn good. Yeah. But I had the best builders. It was We did a competitive process, you know, because we had bond bill funding. Although back then, there were a lot of things uh, really fighting me to keep me out of the art world. I mean, really, like, nasty stuff. And so instead of doing the usual $1 private sector match to every dollar of bond bill funding, I had to do 5 to 1. 5 to 1. And I created a, a, a British Charitable Trust because right when I was about to lose the negotiating priority, I had uh, Dame Anita Roddick, the woman who founded the body shop, who didn't know me from Adam, but I just admired her. And from the moment we met, we could read each other's thoughts. And she came into my windowless little office over at Harbour Court and said, I've only been gobsmacked, British term, twice in my life. This is the third. What do you need? And I went, I need $500,000 by next week. And she said, well, um, go speak with my husband, Gordon, because normally I would just say yes, but I've um, pissed him off on something before. And so I had to go up to New Jersey, meet with him. Providentially, he was going to even be at their headquarters there. And I went with Gerald Hawks from Turner Station, who was the matchstick artist, very spiritual man. 
and the first person who I let walk through our doors, followed by the uh, worldly gig maker, the farmer, mm-hmm. and they became great friends. But uh, she gave us that money, and then eventually um, much, much more. And many other people were exceedingly generous. Um, Zamble Krieger hated the idea of museums, had no interest, but Bob Hiller really encouraged him to listen. And he had just given the biggest grant to Hopkins ever at that time, $50 million for the Krieger Mind Brain Institute. So they had their money, and the head of the Mind Brain Institute went to lunch with all of us, listened to my idea, and he, as a mensch, said, Zan, give her money because people will understand the connection much more between mind and brain with what she's doing than what we're doing. Right. Just so, just yeah. research on and that. I think in a sense it's the same way with preservation. People understand better why buildings and places matter when individuals and organizations like yours use them than us just talking about them, right? Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for the use of space and showing people why these places matter and that they still have value and they can still tell stories. Because who, who would have thought that a trolley barn and other buildings like this, a paint warehouse, could tell this really important not well, just national story, but a worldwide story, a, hum- a story of humankind. Well, it goes uh, it goes back. I mean, there's so much history laden today, and I'm really glad you're getting to it. What people don't realize is where the gallery is in the harbor was water. And so 24-7, the pumps are working to keep that garage viable. If they were to quit for even like two days, it would be a disaster for the gallery. So the water went up to actually where Water Street is. You know, there, yeah. there was, uh, and so most of that part of the harbor is just fill. But here was, uh, Federal Hill was a real hill. It's tunneled. I can tell you that when uh, uh, people who are even a little bit younger than me, they used to play in the tunnels. And when you see the basketball court at the southwestern corner, there is this stone wall built. That was the original entry into the tunnels. And the tunnels had cannonballs in them, and some of them were a little collapsing. But they went up into uh, at least two of the Montgomery Street townhouses. You know, so there were all these, you know, War of 1812, you know, military tunnels. But the hill, even though it was fortified, was still a real hill. But our property, if you go down like 10 feet, you get the purest, whitest sand you've ever seen. Uh, it, it's really remarkable. So this was original land always. So when we, um, <laughs> I would bake cakes, bake cookies, and when the EPI guys would, would come over, because I was so worried, you know, that, that it would be like a gazillion dollars to remediate the soil and whatever. You know, it's always a human being that interprets a regulation. So we said, well, could we hand air, air raid? Because it was very smelly with Forsal when we got the tank removed. And and they and we had like tons of volunteers just hand aerate the soil and then we got the okay and a few more cakes later you know <laughs> it was signed off on you know so it was like so I mean, it is doable I mean I think the other point too here is we hear a lot of people who say well this site can't be fixed because it has lead or it has asbestos or it has this mm-hmm. or it has that but you've been able to show that all of those things can be overcome with a little bit of ingenuity, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, the design, and then Becky just loved it as well. Alex Castro had that Fibonacci swirl um, dived uh, in, and, and even the curves of our you know, cafe balcony and the other wall, retaining wall around the whirly gig. It's as if, if you were to fly above like a bird, they're like concentric circles that, that interact with each other. Um, 
Uh, and if you notice, there's like a fin that we've now covered. You know, our, our mosaic walls aren't just beautiful, but they, they constitute the largest apprenticeship of incarcerated kids in the United States. We started out apprenticing the Southern High School kids that had a 72% dropout rate when we first got here, because, like, hello, we have to help. And we said, give us your toughest cases. And every single one of those kids stayed in uh, school. Not one of them dropped out. And what you're referring to for people who are listening is that the the walls themselves, how would you describe them? I want to hear you describe them. Well, we had the architecture had these three-story curved walls, and we won the National Award for Curved Walls and the National Award for Excellence and also for the concrete, for the pavers. We won all these obscure but in builder speak, you know, major awards at the national level. But from the very beginning, I can show you the original invitation. We didn't have money to build an architecture model of what we wanted. So the chef at Harbor Court at that time, the pastry chef, made a five-foot model, which I'll, I'll pull for you in a little bit for your archives. Here it is. So this was the Whiskey <laughs> Warehouse. This was the original building. Mm-hmm. You can see the fin comes out there where we now have the dawn but none of this was built other than this building and this building but covered in jelly beans for the idea of the mosaics and there's something and um so it was so big so we served it at the groundbreaking with anita roddick there zamble creeker there senator mikulski there and then what we didn't um eat or went over to the children's home you know it was it was something that was huge so um, that cool. was uh, the original groundbreaking. So, so let me ask you this: What can people expect next? I mean, you've have, well, you, have you completely outgrown this campus, or is there going to be more construction, more buildings, campuses elsewhere? Well, for fifteen years, we've been offered various sites in California. Uh, when our good friends at the Exploratorium had to move out of their historic, um, you know, they were for years and years in a temporary building from the, the old World's Fair in San Francisco, which I love, by the way. And then they weren't allowed to stay there anymore, and they were offered two piers at, at a similar thing to, like, our Inner Harbor, very modern, and they offered us one pier. But it's like a kite can only fly really high when, when it's totally, you know, held. And so I, won't, I went 15 years uh, without taking one day's vacation, to keep this place going. We're now 22. I I didn't do it last year, but I'm going to go hopefully again this year. But, um, you know, it takes a lot of dedication to just keep it debt-free, even with all of our success. This is a museum that with our 100-plus weddings and corporate events, we earn over two and a half times the national average of percentage of our earned income. So we've maximized pretty much that. Right. But we still need money as given. Mm-hmm. And um, How big of an operation is it on an annual basis? It, it's just under $3 million right now. I mean, some years, if we're doing a capital project, it may go as high as 3.2, but um, uh, it's usually like 2.9 to, you know, in that range. Yeah. Uh, but if I go, I know, you know, director's going to want a very professional fundraiser. Uh, they want to have um, a secretary. You know all the things that I don't. I don't have. But we have an extraordinary staff. You know, and they're very. Uh, they deserve to be paid a lot more. But they stay because this is a museum that makes every day. You can see the impact it has on people. You know, people are saying, "Oh my God, it's my favorite place in the world, or the most healing place I've ever been." That kind of thing. So. Um, I don't know. You know, our board uh, totally agrees that 
until we've raised our endowment goals here, which are very modest. It's $25 million. If you know anybody named Aaron Aardvark, We'd like to keep the A in front of American Visioning Art Museum if possible. Uh, we're, we're trying to sell the naming <laughs> opportunity for that. But we have no debt, none. We own Which all the fantastic. buildings. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, obviously, I'm curious what you consider yourself because you sort of seem like you are multidisciplinary in a variety of different ways. You describe mm-hmm. yourself in a lot of different ways. But do you consider yourself a preservationist? Having done this kind of work? Because a lot of people mm-hmm. who engage in preservation work never consider themselves as such. It's, it's sort of a bad moniker with it, that we've created because a lot of people mm-hmm. do the work. You are a preservationist. Mm-hmm. I, I have no problems calling you that because of what mm-hmm. you've done here. But do you consider yourself as such? Yeah, I have to say it was very interesting. Um, I, I've been called in to review before the museum doors even opened historic uh, collections, one at the last leprosy colony in the United States. Hmm. And it was over 100 years old, and I was ready for, like, unbelievable stuff. And I get there, and the people who, well, in a well-meaning way, think of art as the person who sat next to them in the seventh grade who does really good horse heads or flowers, had denuded the collection of almost everything of interest. No embroidered clothes, no personalized illustrated diaries. You know, all the things that would come from having people there for 100 years. Right. And the same with St. Elizabeth's. They paid me to come in when they wanted to do a museum. And they're the oldest mental health, um, mental hospital in America. I mean, they go back to the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. And some very famous people live there. One still does, you know, the one who tried to kill um, uh, Reagan. So I'm there, and I cannot. I said, there is no way that they showed me, like, not a very much, many things, you know. I said, there's no way that you had a 100-plus years of people here, and you have this little. And and I said, show me your closets. I mean, there's got to be tons of stuff. Nope, nope, nope. And they never put it together. I said, well, let me speak to your director of housekeeping. And they said, oh, yeah, so-and-so has a little store down on the eastern shore. (laughs) And I went, oh, my God. Because uh, most of the time for places like that, it was a one-way trip. So they brought with them, you know, their little possessions, their wedding Mm -hmm. dress, their... And they had beautiful old photos. I mean, old buttons, old shoes, shoe hooks, wedding rings. I said, where is all their stuff? And they didn't even think what had happened. I was like, it took me, like, a day of saying this cannot be, and then I realized exactly what had happened. So, um, as far as preservation goes, my people think, oh, you must be into contemporary stuff and everything. And what I want to say, like the the best preservation, often comes from benign neglect. Yeah, like you you almost yeah. hope for that, you know. Yeah, poverty creates good preservation sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, and um, you know. I'm always looking for places where they didn't clean out everything. Right. The, some of the most amazing... Yeah, sanitized history. There's something boring about it. Well, also, they, they <laughs> you have a human being who goes, oh, this... Or if it is sexual in any way, you know, there are people who just, oh, got to get rid of this, you know? <laughs> so a lot gets thrown out. And, and if we if we could go back in time and keep every building that was ever in existence... Uh, from, let's say, 1900 on Charles Street, we would have one of the biggest draws on the whole East Coast. Yeah. 
and that's the truth. Yeah. You know, so I see, you know, like, that's heartbreaking yeah. for me. I mean, some of the most gorgeous uh, buildings are gone. Mm. Um, you, I think the, one of your questions before was, what building do you love the most? And I adore because it's almost cartoony for me. The mocked building. Do you know the mocked mm-hmm. building? Yeah. I love that building. <laughs> With all the little naked statues holding up. And it's, it's, I don't know why. It reminds me of fractured fairy tales. The way that it's, it's done. Um, well, this has been a fantastic opportunity just to get to sit and talk with you and, and sort of understand the story behind the story. Because I think a lot of people, as you say, love this place. I mean, I think anybody you bump into who has, who has been here... Um, has fallen in love with it. I don't, I don't know anybody who's had a bad experience here. Oh, wow. And, and, but it's exciting for us to hear about the story behind it and, and what brought you to this specific place and all the trials and tribulations that go along with it because there's a, there's a lot of, uh, difficulty with repurposing historic buildings, but yeah. we're so pleased you have and, and want to thank you for it. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com on Facebook, or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. Keep preserving.